0: Good morning. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy Two, eleven 11 through 15. It did seem like a the right thing, a strategic thing, a thing we're, we're grateful this opportunity that God has given Greg to serve our region in this way and those of us here who have worked with him and under him and around him have so benefited from God's anointing on his life, and we're so thankful for that, and just seemed like a fitting next step. One of the pioneers of second wave feminism, which really took off in the, the 70s, was a woman named Kate Miller, and Millet. excuse me, and you, you may not know that name, but Time Magazine once dubbed her the Karl Marx of the women's movement. In the words of her sister, Mallory Millett, Kate's thesis was that the family is a den of slavery with the man as the bourgeoisie and the woman and the children as the proletariat, if you're familiar with Karl Marx and his thinking, the, the oppressor and the oppressed. The man is the oppressor, the wife and children are the oppressed, and the only hope for the world is women's liberation. Kate's book, Sexual Politics, written at the end of the 1960s, really launched a lot of uh, women's studies in colleges across the country. It became required reading in these colleges. Um, women's studies has now grown into women's gender and sexuality studies, majors at most colleges in America today. Listen to what her sister, Mallory Millett, writes, records, in an experience that she had in 1969. This is Kate's sister, Mallory. It was 1969. Kate invited me to join her for a gathering at the home of her friend, Lila Karp. They called the assemblage a consciousness-raising group, a typical communist exercise, something practiced in Maoist China. We gathered at a large table as the chairperson opened the meeting with a back-and-forth recitation, like a litany, a type of prayer done in Catholic church. But now it was Marxism, the church of the left, mimicking religious practice. Why are we here today, she asked. To make revolution, they answered. What kind of revolution, she replied. The cultural revolution, they chanted. And how do we make cultural revolution, she demanded. By destroying the American family, they answered. How do we destroy the family, she came back by destroying the American patriarch, they cried exuberantly. And how do we destroy the American patriarch, she replied? By taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy, they shouted. How can we destroy monogamy? Their answer left me dumbstruck, breathless, disbelieving my ears. Was I on planet Earth, who were these people? By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality, they resounded. They proceeded with a long discussion on how to advance these goals by establishing the National Organization of Women. It was clear. They desired nothing less than the utter deconstruction of Western society. The upshot was that the only way to do this was to invade every American institution. Everyone must be permeated with the revolution, the media, the educational system, universities, high schools, K-12, school boards, etc. Then the judiciary, the legislatures, the executive branches, and even the library system. It fell on my ears. As a ludicrous scheme, as if they were a band of highly imaginative children planning a Brinks robbery. A lark trumped up on a snowy night amongst a group of spoiled brats over booze and hashish. That's the end of Millet's account. You catch those, those words? The family is a den of slavery. Destroy monogamy promote promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, homosexuality, to undo civilization as we know it. And while it sounded ludicrous to Mallory's ears in 1969, here we are, 50 years later, and everybody's reeling still, trying to figure out, what just happened? Sadly, I think it's possible to say the world has been more astute than many in the church in recognizing the strategic significance of masculinity and femininity, husbands and wives, marriage, children, the home, headship and submission, and throughout history, the enemy has focused a concentrated assault against this area. Masculinity and femininity. Masculine headship, feminine submission, the home. The, the present day is no exception, but in the economy of God, God's way of ordering all things, God redeems men and women, and he redeems them as men and women, and so God's word, his word speaks to us with timeless authority on this issue. So I've titled this sermon the same thing as I titled last week's sermon, just part two, Redeeming Masculinity and Femininity. It was a big deal in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, it's a big deal in America today, and so let's give our attention to 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, I invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God's holy and authoritative and clear and sufficient word to us. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled and amazed. We are grateful and glad before you to know that you have spoken. You've spoken into this dark world, this chaotic world of sin and transgression and rebellion against you, and you've spoken that we might know you and walk in your ways. Thank you for the things that are revealed. They belong to us and to our children, that we may know you and walk in your ways. And so we receive your word by faith. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe and understand. And give us the will, the regenerated and sanctified will to obey you by faith for your glory and for our joy. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's fair to say that this text right here, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, is probably one of the most controversial passages in Scripture in the American church in the last 50 years. But, historically speaking, that's a pretty narrow sample. Okay? Last 50 years in the church in America. You could probably spread that out to some other Western cultures. One scholar pointed out there is controversy and debate that surrounds almost every single word in this passage. So people wonder... Uh, what does Paul mean when he says permit? I don't permit. Like, what is that, right? Uh, what does he mean when he says teach? What, what exactly is teaching? What does that mean? What, what does exercise authority really mean? And they go through this passage, and every word, they just go, we don't know what that means. So one cop-out is to take Peter's comment in 2 Peter 3.16. It's apparent that Peter was familiar with some of Paul's writings. And Peter says something really encouraging to a lot of us. He says to his audience, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And a lot of us who have read Paul go, oh, okay, I feel a little better. There's some stuff in Paul's letters that's hard to understand. So people take that and they apply it to this passage. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What is he saying? It's so ambiguous. It's so obscure. I wish he just would have used plain language so we could understand it. Paul, why are you being so cryptic here? We don't know. And apparently, um, you can take these verses and run them through scholarship and so-called exegesis and some Greek word studies, and it turns out to the relief of everyone, that what Paul meant to say was that he does permit women to teach and that to require them to learn with all submissiveness and quietly is actually oppressive, and so he clearly didn't mean to say that. So that was close. Now, being facetious, but I'm not going to get down into all the weeds of all the fancy exegetical gymnastics that goes on in so-called scholarship around this Passage. It really does rival what you'll see at the Olympics this summer. It's amazing what you can do if you twist it and bend it enough. You can make it mean lots of things. But if, if you want to explore that, all, all of that scholarly debate, there are a couple of phenomenal works. One is a book by uh, Andrew Ostenberger and Thomas Schreiner called Women in the Church. It is an interpretation of 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. And it's over 400 pages long. So to give you some idea of all of the stuff that's out there, we we don't have time to cover all of that and walk through the debate around every single word. But it's safe to say that there's solid scholarship that just basically comes to the conclusion, Paul means what he says here. It just means what it says, the straightforward reading of the text. And throughout church history, over the last couple thousand years, and outside of the Western world, that's how the church has always understood this text. It's a novel reading of it that reads all kinds of other things into it. This is not one of Paul's hard-to-understand passages, but it's clear it's one of his hard-to-obey passages in America today. Women are to be learners. That's the first thing. He, He wants women to learn Disciples who are attentively receiving and believing and applying gospel doctrine and theology. So women are to be theologically minded and the emphasis of the text is on the way that women are to learn. Women are to learn in a certain way, namely quietly and with all submissiveness, he says in verse 11. The, the emphasis seems to be on a teachable, undistracting demeanor, more on Absolute quietness, like women aren't supposed to make a sound. We don't actually think that's what Paul teaches because in places like Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, and that letter was written by Paul, it's clear that there were women who prayed and who prophesied in the church. So Paul has in mind a certain kind of teaching, certain office in the church. And those two things, teaching and exercising authority, it's not a random uh, arbitrary uh, list of roles that Paul's grabbing, he's, he's referring specifically to the office of elder or pastor or overseer. In the very next verses, he's going to go into qualifications for an elder or overseer in the church, so the men who exercise authority in the church. And 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 2, later in uh, chapter five seventeen, it's clear that elders are responsible for teaching and preaching God's word. So exercising authority and teaching, he's talking about the role of pastor, elder, and his point is clear. Pastors must be men, and I would say it's clear from the text as well, not just biologically male, but they must be masculine. That's an important part of the pastoral role. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, writing 50 years ago when he says at the time, Anglican Church in England is thinking about ordaining women but, of course, that won't happen. That would be absolutely crazy, and it would divide everybody and ruin the church. So that won't happen. But let me write about it anyway. Here we are. It didn't take too long. C.S. Lewis writes this in an essay called Priestesses in the Church. Only one wearing the masculine uniform can provisionally and until the return of Jesus represent the Lord to the church, for we are all corporately and individually feminine to him. We men may often make a very bad decision. Priest, that's because we are insufficiently masculine. It's no cure to call in those who are not masculine at all. A given man may make a very bad husband. You cannot mend matters by trying to reverse the roles. He may make a bad male partner in a dance. The cure for that is that men should more diligently attend dancing classes, not that the ballroom should henceforward ignore all distinctions of sex and treat all dancers as neuter. So Paul doesn't mean here that women can never teach anyone. We know from Titus 2, a pastoral letter written from Paul to another young pastor, he says there, older women are to teach young women. So he doesn't forbid women to talk or to teach. In fact, he calls them to. We know from Paul's correspondence later with Timothy that it it was Timothy's mom and his grandma who were the ones who raised Timothy in the faith and taught him the scriptures which were able to make him wise for salvation. So Paul has a high view of women, he partners with them in ministry, he expects them to do all kinds of things to edify the body, but not to fulfill the role of pastors, elders, overseers, preaching and teaching and exercising authority in the church. I I love this statement, I've quoted it before, you've probably heard it before from the Danvers statement written in 1987, Affirmation 9 says this about women in ministry in general with half the world's population outside the reach of indigenous evangelism, with countless other lost people in those societies that have heard the gospel, with the stresses and miseries of sickness, malnutrition, homelessness, illiteracy, ignorance, aging, addiction, crime, incarceration, neurosis, and loneliness, no man or woman who feels a passion from God to make his grace known in word and deed need ever live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of Christ and the good of this fallen world. It would be hard to improve on that affirmation. There is a role for men and women in meaningful ministry in the church and in the world. In 1 Timothy 2, the main point is pretty straightforward, but my aim this morning is not to stand up here and convince all the women here, don't try to be pastors even though Paul has a specific application for Timothy in the church in Ephesus, where that was apparently an issue that needed to be addressed as not an issue in our church. What I want to do instead is to show you the deep backstory of the story of sex in Scripture, which is where Paul goes to ground his entire argument. And my prayer in doing that is to motivate you, to encourage you, to continue accepting and embracing and living out your God-given masculinity or femininity by faith, and for the glory of God in this world that so desperately needs to see that on display. The trend in modern egalitarian scholarship is to shrink the applications of Paul's words here as narrowly, as tightly as possible. To say, well, what Paul's talking about in this paragraph thankfully only applied to a few people in Ephesus at that time and never again applies to the church. Move along, nothing to see here. I think they're just dead wrong. Far from being some ancient, irrelevant, outmoded teaching, it's hard to imagine a more timely word for us today. Here's the question. What was the universal truth that Paul applied to the situation in Ephesus? Were there some female false teachers there? Probably. But there were also male false teachers there. so if his main concern was just silencing the false teachers, like he says in chapter one, why wouldn't he say, "I don't permit men to teach either?" If he's going to make that kind of blanket statement, what, what is he appealing to? on what grounds, by what right does he exclude women from pastoral ministry? I mean th- this matters because again, egalitarians claim there was a local issue that necessitated this, but If it only applied there, I mean, we should ask the question, could it ever apply again? What kind of situation should we be on the lookout for where we might need to reinstitute something like this? And they say, never again. It'll never happen again anywhere in any culture, thankfully. How do we know that? Well, where, where does Paul go? What reasons does he give? He gives us reasons in verses 13 and 14, and what's amazing is that he doesn't appeal to culture, he doesn't mentioned the local false teachers or their gender. He, he doesn't merely give personal opinion. He goes way back, all the way back to the beginning of humanity in Genesis 1 through 3. And here's what blows my mind. Paul finds the basis for gender roles in the church by looking at gender roles in the first marriage. So he sees something there that is a pattern a revelation of a mystery from God, God's intention for male and female, and he comes to the conclusion that applies to the church too. That is, masculinity and femininity are much deeper than one particular sphere. This is fundamental to our humanity, and it should be worked out in all of the areas of our lives. Paul goes back to the very beginning, which tells us masculinity and femininity run deep in the economy of God, God's way of ordering things. The first truth we see there is that there is a divinely created order for masculinity and femininity. There is a divinely created order. Paul gives his first reason in verse 13. For, that's a logical progression in an argument. Here's the basis. Here's the premise. Here's, here's where I get that conclusion from. Because, since, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And here's how various egalitarian and liberal scholars react to those seven words. The relevance is unclear, one says. The verse is not central to par- Paul's argument, another assures us. This verse is difficult to understand, one writes. The argument here is hard to fathom, says another. I mean, if there's ignorance around this text, it, 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 it is high-handed, willful, and culpable. It's just so clear what Paul is saying. In the order of creation, Adam first, then Eve, Paul recognizes a revelation of God's created order. Male headship, female submission. Headship means, by the way, I I don't know a better definition than this, that, that God holds men responsible. That's primarily what it means. God holds men responsible for leading, for teaching, for providing and protecting their households. And it's focused their own households, not everybody's household, their household. Or in the church, God holds the elders in the church responsible for that church. Or in society, whatever sphere that you're placed in, God holds you responsible. As one author said, masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Who gives an account? Who answers? We we, we know this. At the end of a football season, if a team did poorly, maybe the quarterback messed up here and there. Maybe the defense was weak. Who's always on the hot seat at the end of the season? The head coach. Because the head means responsibility. We, we, we know that. It's just when we come to the Bible, we go, we don't get this. <laughs> Do you ever notice that the command to not eat from the tree in the garden, that's given to Adam in Genesis two sixteen and 17 before Eve shows up. But She shows up in the very next verse. Immediately after telling Adam, don't eat from this one tree, but you may eat from any other. Then, verse 18 says, God says it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. We we can fill in the blanks. How did Eve come to know? How was she to know not to eat from that tree? It was Adam's responsibility to teach her, to disciple her, to lead her in that, to protect her. Adam was responsible, and and that's the beginning of what we could call patriarchy, which just means the rule of the father. The the two parts of that word come from the Greek word for father and the Greek word for rule, the rule of the father. And Marxist feminists like Kate Millett have indoctrinated the last few generations to believe that patriarchy is a swear word. It's It's a bad thing. If you hear that word, you should just run away. I look around today and so many people in the church are saying, yeah, yeah, it's a bad thing. Christianity is patriarchy. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's patriarchy. We have a Father. He loves us and He adopted us. He gave His firstborn Son for us to bring us into His family to be His children. And we're not fighting with Him for authority in His household. He has a household, and we're just thrilled to be in it by His grace. The order does not imply that woman is inferior. The way she's made is significant, from His side, to be with Him as a helper. It it does indicate, the order does indicate difference, though. Man is created from the dirt. I mentioned this last week. Woman is made from the man. Man was brought to the dirt to work it and keep it. Woman was brought to the man to help him. Man is the glory of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Woman is the glory of man. Not a lesser glory, but the glory of glories, the crown. Those are all hints. Those are all glimpses and indications. If we're astute, if we're careful to pay attention, what does it mean? They point us toward the deeper meaning of masculinity and femininity that runs deeper than biological sex. God himself is masculine, and his creation is feminine. Christ is masculine. His church is feminine. That's the deepest meaning of it all. And then for our benefit, God put it on display by making us in his image, male and female, joining men and women together in marriage as a picture of this mystery that just leads Paul into worship in Ephesians 5. Masculinity is initiation femininity is response masculinity is headship femininity is submission though not universal submission god does not call women to just be in submission to all men in general it's not that thankfully and it's not absolute meaning every woman's ultimate submission is to god and so if a husband a father is leading her in sin she is not obligated to follow him into sin so it's not absolute Only God's authority is absolute. Masculinity is externally oriented. Femininity is internally oriented. Our biology points us to that. Masculinity forms and femininity fills, kind of like building the structure of a house. That's one thing. But then to put up the decor, to make it a home, that's another thing. One aspect there is masculine. One of those is feminine. Masculinity is seed. Femininity is fruitfulness. That's why we call the earth Mother Earth, that's a feminine thing. The Earth brings forth fruitfulness. Bill and Barbara Mouser say this, the Bible provides what the world does not have. Listen to this. You have in God's word something the world does not have, which is why they're running around like mad. Confused out of their minds about this. The Bible provides what the world does not have, an authoritative and credible revelation of both the origin and the destiny of masculinity and femininity. If you have eyes to see it, by the Spirit of God. As we understand God's framework for sexuality, we will understand ourselves better. And more importantly, we will understand God and his purposes better as well. God relates to his church this way. God has a created order, but there is a satanic attack, a satanic attack against God's created order for masculinity and femininity. Paul refers to the beginning of that attack in the next reason that he gives here. This is still part of his argument. Another reason, verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I'll grant, that does raise a question. What does that mean? I mean, is he saying women are more gullible, more susceptible to be tricked? And men are immune to that. I don't think that would be fair to say. Paul was well aware that there were male false teachers in the church who were deceived, led astray. So he clearly doesn't think that. If he thought women were especially susceptible to this, he wouldn't have permitted them to teach, older women, teach younger women. Rather, what Paul is emphasizing here is the subversion of God's created order that took place back in the garden during the temptation. That's his point in the argument. That What happened in the way sin came into the world was this created order was subverted, flipped on its head. According to Genesis 3.6, Adam was with Eve the whole time. He was there, Genesis 3.6 tells us. And yet, the ancient serpent, which Revelation 12.9 portrays as a great dragon and goes on to identify as the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, that serpent in the garden avoided Adam, and went straight to Eve. You think that was coincidental? They subverted the created order. Adam abdicated his responsibility to protect and to lead his wife. And Eve stepped up and led her husband. Into sin. L- listen to what God says to Adam, Genesis 3:17. After the fall, when God has cursed the serpent, spoken of the curse on the woman of pain and childbearing, then he addresses the man and he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. He could have just said, Because you ate of the tree. But he says, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate of the tree. Now, obviously God is not condemning listening to your wife. He's, he's, that's a phrase in Hebrew that oftentimes means to obey. To follow that word as authoritative. When the serpent was deceiving Eve, Adam was right there, and he ought to have stepped on the head of the snake right then and there and thrown it out of the garden. When Eve offered him the fruit, he ought to have refused and taken her with him to God in repentance. But he was passive and he was weak and so scripture clearly lays responsibility for sin on Adam. Who does God address first when he comes into the garden? The man Genesis 3:9 The Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?" singular masculine. "Where are you?" You will give an account. You are responsible. That's the order. Paul clearly teaches in Romans 5, it was not when Eve ate, but when Adam ate that sin entered the world. And as the representative head of the human race, that's when his guilt was attributed to all mankind, when Adam ate. And so Paul points out in 1 Timothy 2, that subversion of God's created order, is a reason that the church must uphold this point, that godly men in the church have to step up, take responsibility, protect the church, lead the, ter- the church, teach the church the household of God. R- remember, Mallory Millet. L- listen to her observation again. She asks, oppressed? Women are oppressed? Woman has always had power. Consider the eternal, paradigm. Only after Eve convinced Adam to eat the fruit did mankind fall. That is, man does anything to make woman happy even if it's in defiance of God. Which is why, as cute as it might be to say if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, it's sin to let that be what rules your home. Mallory Millett says, there's power for you. As Mae West said, when women go wrong, men go right after them. Look, we, we can't be ignorant of these things. The world is not ignorant of these things. How do you destroy society? You take down the home. How do you do that? You take down the head. How do you do that? You promote promiscuity, and homosexuality, and eroticism. The world sees it, the church The church has not been blind. There have been people in the church saying this for a long time, but the church has followed the world in so many ways. I mean, the fact that it's even controversial to talk like this should be a reminder to us. The dragon is waging war on the woman, the church, the bride of Christ. Homosexuality and abortion are two of the biggest social issues of our day, and think about what they both mean. Fruitlessness, barrenness. They should be seen for what they are, an attack on the image of God in us as men and women. But there is hope. There's hope because Christ became a man to restore God's created order. Look at the first five words of verse 15. Yet she will be saved, Paul says. We'll talk about the rest of that in just a second. For now, just consider the hope. In those words, the grace, the mercy, the redemption in those words, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They transgressed God's law. Paul just pointed out the woman became a transgressor, yet sin does not have the final word, yet she will be saved by God's grace. Salvation is still promised. It pleased God to save fallen men and women. How did he do it? Paul just told us a few verses ago by sending his own son, the mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He took on humanity. He came as a man and he gave himself as a ransom for all. He did what Adam didn't do. He did what Adam couldn't do. He took responsibility. Jesus took responsibility for the sin of his bride and said, all of her faults and all of her flaws and all of her failings, let that be put on me and let me pay the price for the sins of my bride. That's what Jesus did to redeem his church. And he made it possible for sons of Adam and daughters of Eve to be reconciled to God, to be conformed to his image and to be redeemed in their masculinity, in their femininity. Jesus is the promised offspring that God foretold in Genesis 3. There will be one born of a woman. What a blessing, what a privilege. Born of a woman who, though wounded by the serpent, is going to crush that serpent's head. I mean, that that is the plot of the whole Bible. Kill the dragon, get the girl. I wish I could take credit for that phrase. Kill the dragon, get the girl. That was Adam's job before sin entered the world, and he failed. But it is the plot of the story, and praise God, Jesus did it. He crushed the serpent's head. He succeeded where Adam failed, and he is the true and better Adam. All are counted guilty in Adam. In Christ, we're counted righteous. He is the head of God's household, and he did not come to overthrow or reject God's created order, but to fulfill it and restore it. And so now, you can live out your God-given masculinity or femininity by faith to the glory of God and for the good of this world. Here's the rest of verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is one part of the passage that's difficult for interpreters to make sense of. What exactly does Paul mean here? We know... Paul does not teach salvation by works. We know he doesn't mean a woman has to have children to be saved. What's he talking about when he says she'll be saved through childbearing? One possibility is that Paul's referring to the promise to Adam and Eve that there would be one born of the woman. So maybe it means the childbirth. She'll be saved through Jesus, born of Mary. And there's a lot to like about that. In the end, I don't find it ultimately convincing. I, I do find the interpretation from Tom Schreiner and Andreas Kostenberger in women in the church to be compelling, they point out childbearing is probably a synecdoche, which means when you refer to the whole thing by mentioning just a part of it, like if you see somebody's new car and you say, hey, nice wheels, you don't mean just the wheels are nice, you mean the whole car is nice. Right, when my dad went to his future father-in-law to ask for my mom's hand in marriage, my grandpa's wise response was, well, do you want the rest of her too? To ask for the hand in marriage is referring to the whole thing by referring to a part. When Paul speaks of childbirth, he's probably referring to the whole feminine role by referring to one of the most obvious aspects of femininity, which is fruitfulness and childbearing. We don't have to point that out, right? <laughs> that is unique to women. Even though you see the headlines that say this man just had a baby, no, no such thing has ever happened. It doesn't happen. Biological women who had some surgeries and took drugs and then took enough other drugs to reverse all of that, they're still women biologically. Only women have children. Paul's probably referring to femininity in general by referring to a particular and prominent aspect of femininity. Look look at what he says in Titus 2. Young women are to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive. This is Paul talking about a woman's sphere in the home, calling them to be diligent and faithful there. Raising children is one of the godly marks of a godly widow in 1 Timothy five ten. So why does he say she'll be saved through childbearing? Well, again, he doesn't ever teach salvation by works, that you earn or merit salvation by what you do. But Paul does teach all over the New Testament that the outworking of faith, faith is always coming out. It's always being expressed in love. But not in general, but in specific Works. And so he says here, if, here's the condition, if they continue in faith, not just childbearing alone, it's in faith. Salvation is by grace through faith, and that faith produces works. And those works are going to be different depending on if you're a man or a woman. And so he called godly women a few verses ago to adorn themselves, not just with modest clothes, but with good works, because that's what's appropriate for women who profess godliness. So the point is, genuine faith will produce in both men and women good works consistent with either your masculinity or your femininity. And I have all kinds of thoughts about how this applies, and we're short on time. So let me make a couple concluding applications for you. One, I would encourage you to just start by embracing your manhood or your womanhood by faith. And I know that probably most of you in this room already do, but I think it's worth saying in a day when the world is continuing, continually telling us not to. So there is a huge push. You see it in the fashion world, and you see it all over media towards what is called androgyny, which just comes from the two Greek words for man and woman, man-woman. Put it together, androgynous styles just blur the distinctions. But here's the deal, cultural fashions and norms, and etiquette, and all of those things. There's a train of thought that says it's all just a social construct. Yeah, it varies from culture, just like language varies between cultures, but it's important for communicating. Those distinctions help us communicate man or woman. And communicating matters because you don't live in the world by yourself. You're surrounded by billions of other people, and so you're always communicating with people. What are you communicating? We figure out then as Christians in whatever culture God's put us, how to, with godliness and self-control, by faith, communicate man or woman. That's an important part of it. So it's worth asking yourself, if you're a woman and you ever find within yourself a frequent contempt for something, all things girly or feminine, or kind of a disdain for children, and the home, ask yourself, why? Where's where that coming from? Has the world taught you to despise those things? Let God's word renew your mind. And if you're a man, same, same thing. Do you feel any disdain or contempt for manly things? Why? Where does that come from, first of all, before you, you reject it outright? I, I want to appeal to the, the men here to take responsibility for yourself, whether you're married or single, Take responsibility for yourself first, for your household, if you have one, and whatever else God has entrusted to you. And just just watch. Just watch out for that Adam-like temptation to always drift either toward passivity or sinful domineering. And just evaluate your own schedule and your own hobbies. Start there. I think it's incredibly tempting for us as men to escape the real battles that matter in our home and in the world through sports, through video games, golfing, working out, pseudo battles where we feel like we're winning to escape the battles that matter in the home. Oh man, so many more things I'd like to say. I'll blog about it. I want to say, if you're single, get married. It's, it's in all seriousness. And I realize that's you're only halfway responsible for that. So you can trust yourself to the sovereignty of God. But especially the men to take steps. And if you're married, and it, God allows it, have kids. Don't view kids as liabilities. View them as assets. They're a gift from God. And if you're married, keep covenant with your spouse. This matters in the world today. And if you're single, don't think, well, this just applies to the married people. If you're single and you see that God displays his relationship with the church in masculinity and femininity, you should immediately recognize that winning the battle against lust, walking in blood-bought freedom from pornography, abstaining from sexual immorality and fornication, That matters. Don't think, well, I'm not married, so I don't have a role. No, you do. You have a role in protecting what marriage is. And the world desperately needs to see what godly masculinity and femininity looks like. So that the church, the household of God can hold up and hold out the truth of the gospel to the world. Let me pray. Father, we need your wisdom now to go and live and apply what this means. But we just start by humbly submitting to you in faith and just saying, thank you, you're good, you're wise, you know what you're doing. When you made men and you made women, you did it for your glory and for our good. It's a good thing for us. We just start by accepting it from you. And help us. God, we just we see how confused our society is. Make us, just as we live quiet lives of godliness, experiencing the peace of Christ ruling in us, we're not freaking out, we're not anxious, we're just trusting you, going about the tasks and responsibilities you've given to us. Make us a light, make us a witness, make it attractive to the world and save people out of darkness. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's sing.